0: Chapter 20. Of The City at World's End by Edmund Hamilton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The City at World's End. Chapter 20. Appointment with Destiny. Keniston felt the impact of the news as a catastrophe crushing all their desperate hopes. He stood sagging, looking at the technicians who stared frozenly back. Like an ominous echo, Varn Allen's warning came back into his mind. "'You cannot fight Federation law!' But John Arnold, raging at seeing the dream of a lifetime threatened at this last moment, rushed forward to the messenger. He grabbed the man's collar. "'Did you think to use a distance gauge on the message from those ships?' The man nodded hastily. "'Yes. The readings were—the devil with readings! How far from Earth are those ships?" "'I'd estimate that they're three or four hours away, if they come at full speed.' "'They'll come at full speed, don't worry,' said Arnall grimly. His face was a sweating mask, the bones of it standing out gauntly, as he turned to the others. "'Can we be ready in time?' "'The rack-trip controls are in,' answered a technician. It'll take an hour or more to prepare the timers." Keniston had regained a little hope, when he heard of the time limit they faced. "'Surely we can be ready in time, Arnold! I'll start them moving out the people at once!' Mayor Bertram Garris was not far to seek. Round-eyed and pale with worry, the pudgy mayor had been watching their work around the great shaft. Keniston ran up to him. "'Get the people started out at once, to the ridge of the hills only the sick and old to go in cars. The rest must walk. We can't risk a traffic tangle now." "'Yes,' gasped the mayor. "'Yes, right away.' He caught Keniston's arm, looking past him at the black ovoid bulk of the bomb. As though ashamed to show the terror he felt, Garris stammered, "'How much danger is there, Keniston?' Keniston gave him a reassuring shake. "'Don't worry!' Go along and get those people out of the city!" He wished he could find reassurance himself. The next hours were nightmarish. Working under pressure, grudging every second, it seemed that everything conspired against them. The metal, the mechanisms, the very tools seemed determined to betray them. And yet, at last, the dark shape of the energy-bomb swung in its rack over the mouth of the shaft. The last of the timers was set and it was done. "'Get your equipment ready,' Keniston told them tautly. "'Let's go. There's still a lot to be done.' He went out with Hubble and Arnold and the rest. The city was as he had first seen it, empty, still, lifeless. The people had gone. As he passed out the portal he could see the dark, trailing mass of them already far across the plain, the thousands streaming slowly up the slope of the distant ridge. Anxiously he scanned the sky. There was no sign yet of the control squadron. Arnold sent his technical crew ahead to the ridge with the remote control mechanisms and recording instruments. Gore Hall and Magro and Hubble went with them. Then Keniston and Arnold ran toward the star cruiser. There was a little knot of people standing beside it in the dust and cold. The middletowners who were leaving Earth. Kenniston stared at them in amazement. Out of the two hundred, only a score had actually come to the cruiser. Arnold told them curtly, You can come aboard now. A few of them picked up their bundles and stood irresolutely glancing from their companions to Kenniston and back, wanting to speak. Then they turned and went aboard. Kenniston counted two men, three women, and a child. "'Well,' he snapped at those who were left, "'what are you waiting for? Get aboard!' "'I guess,' said one man, and then stopped to clear his throat, "'I guess I'd rather stay with all the rest.' He grabbed his bundle and started away, hurrying after the distant crowd. Another and another followed him until all were gone, a small hastening group in the immense desolation of the plain. Arnall smiled. Among your people, Keniston, even the cowards are brave. It must be even harder, in some ways, for those who have decided to go." They entered the cruiser, and released Mathis and Norden Lund and Varn Allen from their locked cabins. Varn Allen did not speak, but the coordinator said icily, "'So, you are really going to do it?' "'We are,' said Arnold. "'My chief pilot is about to take this ship off. You'll be safe. Norden Lund said bitterly, ''I hope it blows you all to fragments. But even if it doesn't, even if it succeeds, you won't win. You'll still have Federation law to face. We'll see to that.'' ''I don't doubt it. And now we must go.'' He turned, but Keniston paused, still looking at Varn Allen. Her face was a little pale, but in it was no such anger as Lund's. She was looking at him with a searching, level gaze. He wanted to speak to her. He wanted to voice something that was in him. But he could find no words. He could only say, finally, I'm sorry things had to be this way, Varn. Goodbye." Wait, Keniston. He stopped, and she came up to him, pale and calm, her blue eyes very steady on his face. She said, I'm staying here while you do this thing." He stared at her, dumb with astonishment, and he heard Mathis exclaim, "'Are you mad? What are you thinking of?' She told Mathis slowly, "'I am administrator of this world sector. If my mistakes have caused this crisis, I will not evade its consequences. I will stay.' Blund cried to Mathis, She's not thinking of her responsibility! She's thinking of this primitive, this Keniston!" She turned, as though to make furious reply. But she did not speak. She looked instead at Keniston, her face white and strained. Mathis was saying to her coldly, "'I will not order you to come with us, but be sure that your conduct will be remembered when your fitness for office is re-examined.' She bowed silently to that, and turned and went out of the ship, and Keniston, following her, felt a wondering, incredulous emotion that he dared not let himself recognize. They stepped out into the red sunlight, and with a soft humming the star-cruiser mounted into the sky and was lost to view. The last dark trailing mass of people was disappearing over the ridge, as Keniston and Allen and Arnold started that way. Hurry! urged Arnold. Even yet we might be too late. When they reached the ridge, Gore Hall and Magro and Hubble were waiting there with the young technicians and their apparatus, and Gore Hall uttered a rumbling exclamation when he saw them. I thought you'd stay, Varn. Her head went up, and she said, half angrily, But why should you? She stopped abruptly and was silent a moment, then asked, How soon? We're all set now, the big Capellan answered. Keniston saw that the radio control box and the panels of strange instruments were ready. He glanced at Arnold. The scientist's face was filmed with sweat. All the color had gone from it, and his hands shook. In this moment, he was facing the climax of his whole life, all the years and the pain and the effort. He said in a strangely toneless voice, You would better warn them, Keniston, now." Below them, on the far slope of the ridge, waited the thousands of Middletown's people. Keniston went down toward them. He cried out to them, and his voice carried thin and unreal on the chill wind, across the dead rocks and the dust. "'Keep down behind the ridge! Pass the word to keep down! We're going to blow it!' They looked toward him. All the massed white faces pale in the dim light of the sun, the dying sun, that watched them with its red, uncaring eye. A great silence fell upon them. By ones and twos, and then by hundreds, they knelt to pray, and others, by the hundreds, stood unspeaking, looking solemnly upward to the crest of the ridge. Here and there a child began to cry. Slowly. Gripped as in a strange and fateful dream, Keniston mounted again to where Arnold and the others stood. Far beyond them he saw the dome of the city, still glowing with light as they had left it, lonely in the vast barrenness of the plain. He thought of the black thing waiting alone in the city to make its nightmare plunge, and a deep tremor shook him. He reached out and took Allen's hand. In that last minute before Arnold's fingers pressed the final pattern on the control board, Varnallen looked past Keniston, down at the silent, waiting thousands, who were the last of all the races of old earth. "'I see now,' she whispered, "'that, in spite of all we have gained since your day, we have lost something, too—a courage—a blind, brave, something—I'm glad I stayed. Arnold drew a sharp and painful breath. It is done, he said. For a long, eternal moment the dead earth lay unstirring. Then Keniston felt the ridge leap under his feet, once, twice, four times, the sharp grinding shocks of the capper bombs sealing the great shaft. Arnold watched the quivering needles of the dials. He had ceased his trembling now. It was too late for anything, even emotion. Deep, deep within the buried core of the earth, a trembling was born, a dilating shudder that came slowly upward to the barren rocks and touched them, and was gone. It was as though a dead heart had suddenly started to beat again. To beat strongly, exultantly, a planet reborn. The pointers on the panel of dials had gone quite mad. Gradually, they quivered back to normal, all but one row of them, at which Arnold and his crew stared with intensity. Keniston could bear the terrible silence no longer. Has it? His voice trailed away into hoarseness. Arnold turned very slowly toward him. He said, as though it was difficult for him to speak, Yes. The reaction is begun. There is a great flame of warmth and life inside earth now. It will take weeks for that warmth and life to creep up to the surface, but it will come." He turned his back, then, on Keniston, on all of them. What he had to say was for the tired, waiting young men who had labored with him so long. He said to them, "'Here, on this little earth, long ago, one of our savage ancestors kindled a world. And there are all the others, all the cold, dying worlds out there." Keniston heard no more. A babble had broken loose. Varne Allen was clinging to him, and Gore Hall was shouting deafeningly, and he heard the stammering questions of Mayor Garris and Hubble's shaking voice. Over all came the surge of thousands of feet. The thousands of Middletown were coming up the slope. Scrambling, running, a life-or-death question on their white faces. "'Tell them, Ken,' said Hubble, his voice thick. Keniston stood upon the ridge, and the crowd below froze tensely silent as he shouted down to them, "'It has succeeded! All danger is over, and in weeks the heat of the core will begin to reach the surface.' He stopped. These were not the words that could reach their hearts. Then he found those words, and he called them to the thousands. "'It has been chill winter on earth for a million years. But now, soon, spring is coming back to earth! Spring!' They could understand that. They began to laugh and to weep, and then to shout and shout. They were still shouting when the great control cruisers came humming swiftly down from the sky. End of chapter 20